Hello and welcome to Border Country, everything you never wanted to know about Wales. This is a podcast exploring Wales and Welshness throughout history with me, Rian E. Jones. This introductory episode is going out on St. David's Day, 1st of March. So uh, let me begin by embarrassing myself as a non-Welsh speaker by wishing you all Diesgol Dewi Sant Harpis. Good pronunciation. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Thank you. Uh, I'm here with my co-presenter, Carl Neville, who, despite having no uh, no Welsh connections yourself, Carl, you think uh-huh. Wales is uh, an, an interesting place and, and, and concept. So I'll be I'll be trying to validate or challenge that perception um, throughout this series. Um, I'm sure that you've already validated it, Rian, just through the many interactions that we've had over the years. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's basically right. I think part of the impetus for us to do this was just conversations that we'd had over a number of years that Mm -hmm. revealed that I knew nothing about Wales and um, that I probably ought to know a bit more about it than I do, really. So I think that was um, why we decided to start here with like a provisional set of episodes where we looked at uh, a couple of sort of important or main themes or trends around Wales and, and Welshness. Yeah and there, there are many obvious questions that you probably have about Wales and that listeners will have um, which I actually can't answer in any depth um, especially about contemporary Wales because I'm, uh, I'm a Welsh expatriate and this is why uh, we'll be having guests on to discuss their areas of, of expertise and interest throughout the series. Um, to be honest, I mean, most of what you've you've learned from me is very obscure niche things about Wales, because um, that's that's where my historical interests lie. Um, though I do part of the impetus for this series as well is that I've I often have conversations with people, um, and and they end up saying, oh, I, n- I never knew any of this about Wales, about really quite basic stuff like the fact that Wales uh, has a parliament now, or has a has a devolved NHS, or has its own language, you know, so very things that I would expect people to know and they don't, but also things that I know people don't know and um, I guess would interest niche sections of, um, of our listeners, like the fact that the, uh, the first place where the red flag was raised in protest uh, was in Merthyr Tydfil in the Welsh Valleys in 1831 as part of the Merthyr Rising. Um, and the last men, just to sort of carry on this, this revolutionary tradition, uh, the last men that were tried for treason in this country and sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered with the Welsh leaders of the Newport Rising in 1839. Uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of a less bloodthirsty uh, example. Oh, the, the, um, the creation of the NHS in Wales uh, by Welshman and Irene Bevan. Um, the NHS was based on a, a mutual aid society in his hometown, the Tredega Medical Aid Society. So there's all um, these really interesting ways in which Wales has, has shaped the UK and has um, contributed to left politics and popular organization um so that's my that's that's where my sort of promotion of the country comes from i guess but there's um there's many other things that uh, we'll be talking about in the series yeah well we should think probably about some of the um sort of topics or the, some of the areas that we'll look at uh bit more specifically i mean before i start going off at tangents as i will do invariably throughout this whole undertaking um i mean i think that that's the way you're saying it's like sort of right that like you know people will especially sort of people on the left or or um 
people are generally interested in sort of anti-capitalist sort of movements or whatever. We'll, we'll know like some like pockets of elements of Welsh history, but like a sort of holistic understanding of Wales's sort of history, its relationship to England, and the development of its politics and its culture and so on. I think is lacking a missing lacking for me really mm-hmm. um and I think that that is sort of partly something that we want to address as well we want to be able to look at um things with a degree of sort of historical depth as well right um hopefully yeah hopefully I mean I mean obviously that's a massive undertaking we won't just sort of like be able to do that immediately but at least we're prepared to start off on the undertaking aren't we I guess mm-hmm. and and also with regard to sort of um that lack of a sort of a, a larger sort of more holistic understanding of of Wales you know I think that like um, for instance my own ignorance um, is symptomatic in some ways and it's sort of you know, very broadly shared you know I mean I don't want to um, I simply don't want to bluff it in any way um, and that means that I'll expose myself but I don't mind um, luckily uh, you know this isn't um, on video so if I do expose myself nobody nobody will be able to see it but but so so I will expose my, my ignorance there in, in ways that are often probably like quite flagrant and shocking but I mean I think like somebody has to be sort of the lead idiot right the one who's prepared to say look I don't know anything about this and or, mm. or have a very superficial understanding and so on and um, I mean I, I'll probably do that as well like there's this uh, huge gaps in my knowledge and my awareness of uh of Welsh history and politics and, and culture. So hopefully like our guests will uh, will be able to help us fill in those gaps. Yeah, that's great. It's very diplomatic of you to say that as well. So who, who are we going to be talking to and what are we going to be talking uh, about? Um, well, we've got, um, I think the, the initial episode uh, that's going out next will be on um, Welsh politics, mm-hmm. um, past, present and, and hopefully future. So we'll be looking at, again, trying to, trying to break down stereotypes about Welsh politics because I would well I mean let me let me ask you what your mm. your assumption is about how Welsh people vote and what our what our class basis is and uh, our oh, political traditions okay um okay well let's let's get into that exposing me straight away then. um <laughs> I would say okay so my overwhelming assumption is that um everybody votes Labour in Wales um that you've got a sort of you've got a devolved government right um, I don't know what its powers are particularly. Um, I assume it's relatively toothless, um, dominated by the Labour Party. And I mean, I know a little bit because um, we sort of did a little bit of research together for a book that you have coming out soon, which we won't get into right now, um, that looked a little bit at sort of things like the Care Future Generations Act and some of these mm-hmm. sort of progressive policies that have come in in Wales. So um, my assumption is it's pretty left. It's got a fairly progressive government um, and it's massively deindustrialized and generally pretty poor compared to southern England certainly but probably even prepared to, uh, compared to sort of um, large metropolitan parts of northern England um, how, how was that was that a reasonable <laughs> I would I mean I would say again from a position of, um, of of partial ignorance myself I would say that's broadly correct well, hey, um, hey. I think uh, I think that the country is sometimes more left-wing than the government I mean Welsh mm. Welsh Labour particularly, and I, I say this as a, a party member, um, Corbynism in Wales was always sort of um, an, up, an uphill struggle because the Welsh Labour Party is like an outpost of that sort of um, 
cargo cult Blairism mm. um, that has uh, has been an issue for the Labour Party over the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, so it's been, I think it, it hasn't managed to sort of harness the potential that devolution had. It's concentrated a lot on kind of cultural boosterism um, and getting inward investment into, into mm. Cardiff and th- at, at the expense of... Um, of the rest of the country. Um, I mean, the, the other two big traditions in, in Wales, which we'll explore, uh, one is 19th century liberalism mm. with, with a large L. So it was sort of in the, the 19th century before the Labour Party was a thing. Um, it was liberal party or the Whigs uh, versus the Tories. Um, and Wales uh, was caught up in that by developing a, a programme of Welsh liberalism that was very much based on um, freedom of religion, um, protection and promotion of the Welsh language um, and also things like land reform so it was it was very anti-landlord in a way that's kind of quite quite modern maybe or maybe it's, it's just depressing because it shows that landlordism has always been um, an issue for the past 300 years mm. um, and the other the other big tradition is uh, Welsh nationalism mm. of course which is now from, from kind of, I, I will go out on a limb here and say quite dubious beginnings, um, the, the founder of, of Plaid Camry um, described Franco as a, a fine Christian gentleman at one point, for example, and th- there's been a lot of sort of fringe blood and soil elements mm. to um, to Welsh nationalism, which uh, I for one find fairly off-putting. Um, however, in the in the 60s, like so Plaid was founded in 1925, um, by the time the 60s came along, that was the first time it presented an electoral challenge to Labour. Um, in Wales, and that was very much bound up with um, not so much nationalism as a, a sort of national liberation um, struggle. Okay. So it was um, very much tied in with, uh, again, protecting the Welsh language, um, a, a sort of resurgence of uh, music, drama, um, and art, which focused on the language and on promoting that aspect of Welsh identity. Mm-hmm. Um, against the sort of what they saw as homogenizing forces that were um, just going to anglicize Wales and and would mean they would end up losing that particular culture. So that was, um, I would say nationalism in that era was a more sort of left libertarian Mm. ethos than the one that it began with. Um, The 60s, I mean, here's here's a a niche niche aspect that I'm interested in. The the 60s was also um, a time of uh, almost paramilitary activism for um for Welsh nationalists as well so in it, it, there are many ways in which Wales has also uh, you know has always been in the shadow of uh, of Ireland and our, our minuscule and slightly embarrassing paramilitary tradition was uh, part of that as well I and mean, there were there were attempts to disrupt the investiture of um of Prince Charles for example at Aberystwyth University um there were attempts to um again this this requires some some background. Um, Trewerin, which is a, a cultural touchstone for Welsh history. Um, this was, uh, well, this, this involved the, um, the depopulation of a, a village in, um, in Wales, Cabal Callan, um, and the flooding of the valley that it was in, um, in order to supply uh, water for industry uh, to, to parts of England, to the Wirral. Um, this was obviously received as um, well, let's let's say a huge imposition um, by the people that lived there and Wales in general, because you know we're not a country that's just here to have our resources exploited. We actually have agency and we have people that uh, that live here. Um, 
so there was a lot of protest around this and that included um, people attempting to blow up the uh, the dam that was being built there. Um, so that's why, again, that's a, that's a bit of hidden history. I, I wasn't fully aware of this until um, relatively late on, but there's that kind of thing, uh, Welsh language activism. And I mean, one of the things that we're going to look at is um, sort of inevitably these kinds of these kinds of incidences, I suppose, and um, incidents, and sort of part, partly the relationship between England and Wales, because we're going to look at sort of the Dragon House Two Tongues as well, I think, which mm -hmm. I still haven't watched completely, though I have seen the excellent sort of um, commentary on it that's provided by uh, Wales on Film, who, who we're also going to talk to mm -hmm. um, later on um, as well. So just for anybody who doesn't know what the Dragon has Two Tongues is, we'll probably discuss it in some detail with the uh, incomparable uh, Daniel Evans, right? But um, yep. what, I mean, it, this again, this is a sort of like, uh, well, it's not hidden in plain sight, is it? Because it's completely unavailable. It's just it's completely hidden. hidden. Yes. <laughs> but but I mean, it's this sort of like epic take on sort of Welsh history, like cinematically, mm. it's like sort of really interesting as well. Um, and and now almost completely forgotten, except for probably a hardcore uh, sort of cadre of Welsh nationalists who swap it around on a hat on little, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is. It, it's it's known within Wales as a concept, I think, even if people haven't managed to see it. And um, yeah, Nick, Nick Stradlin, uh, Wales on Film, has done really sterling work in um, putting his his very condensed cut of it um, on YouTube and trying to gain permission to, to have it shown more widely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that blew my mind when I first watched it. And I think um, Dan had the same... Um, the same experience, even even though all it is is a history of Wales from prehistoric times up until the seventies and eighties. But it's just not something that you see, and there's there's so much. There's an absolutely dazzling array of um, historical angles and facts that you wouldn't have known. And the I mean, the main thing about it is that it's uh, it's got its own internal dialectic because it's got uh, Wales's great Marxist historian Gwynolf Williams uh, arguing with uh, Winford Vaughan Thomas, who's got a very um, patrician, unionist, uh, sort of Whiggish way of, um, of conceptualizing Welsh history um, and very, um, I don't know, I think he, he sort of argues for continuity in Welsh history and, and therefore sort of peaceful coexistence um, with both England and capitalism, I think, whereas um, Gwynalf is coming from a materialist Marxist perspective, which disrupts uh, all of that. So it's really interesting to see them interact. And like on the basis of, um, well, actually not on the basis of anything. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting a sentence like that, actually. I'll go back and think about that again. Talking about um, sort of Welsh Marxists, are we, I mean, is it right to call Raymond Williams a Marxist? Exactly. Um, I mean, it might well be. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to like set up some complicated trap about definitions. I'm just not sure, sure if he's I mean, defined as a Marxist. He started off from the Marxist tradition. I mean, mm. I think he, in terms of cultural theory, he pursued what we would probably call a third way mm. um, between doctrinaire, dogmatic um, Marxist criticism and, um, again, the very sort of high Tory um, conservative th theory that was in vogue in his day. Um, I mean, there's... Ray Raymond Williams is massively interesting to me and his actual, the, the concept and the fact of Raymond Williams is 
possibly more interesting than his writing is because it's a lot to plow through. It's extremely dense. And part of part of his achievement, um, which was revolutionary, is that a lot of the stuff that he put forward, which hadn't been thought about before at all um, and turned critical theory upside down, um, is now stuff that we just take for granted. Mm. So it's a bit like he went into um, a room full of boring, staid Cambridge academics, uh, wallpapered the room with really crazy patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like 70 years later, the wallpaper has faded and the patterns just look fine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're going to try and have a little think about his, um, well, his novels have become fashionable again, haven't they? Which I think is probably why I've actually read one of them. Um, I don't know if fashionable is the right to... Well, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be where, where the fashionable stuff is, as such, but they've become <laughs> slightly more discussed by people who are interested in obscure leftist utopian Welsh fiction mm. than previously, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, so... I guess we're going to sort of we're going to try and have a conversation that, that primarily sort of looks at him as a, a thinker and a theorist, which it sounds like we'll both be learning something there, Rian, if that's not too presumptuous of me. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, and we'll also try and have a little sort of think about um, his fiction as well, um, especially the sort of utopian currents in his in his fiction. Um, do you think uh, has Williams become? I mean, he, if, I feel like he's become a figure that people have looked to on the left more recently than they would have done say like 10 mm. 15 years ago he wouldn't have yeah what, what I'm, you not, think that's about? I'm not really sure what's caused that resurgence mm. to be honest uh, unless it's me <laughs> it could be <laughs> very very doubtful um but yeah i mean there's a lot of uh contemporary relevance in his stuff particularly now i mean i don't want to get into sort of culture war stuff particularly but the the way that we view um framings of our own history and the way that culture is framed is something that he um, looked at a lot. One of my favourite works of his is uh, Keywords, where he looks at um, words that are very common in mainstream discourse and sort of breaks them down, Mm. um, which I think is a really good thing to apply to contemporary discourse. Like, let's let's sort of think about the word aspiration, for example, uh, or woke, you know, like the the way that that's been... um, completely wrenched out of its original context and turned into like a like a demonized um concept in a similar way to how uh political correctness was mm. in the 90s was sort of appropriated by um by the right wing um it's impossible to understand contemporary political discourse unless you look at the origin of these words and how they've been appropriated mm. how their meanings have been changed um and that's that's something that williams brought in that was um was quite revolutionary i think you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking the other day that Repeater Radio needs a sort of an equivalent series, really, uh, for like sort of contemporary keywords. That's something you and I have discussed previously that like it would be really useful to have a sort let of updated me, version of that book. Let me preempt yeah. listeners by saying that um, the, the Welsh magazine Planet um, has got a series that does exactly this sort of contemporary contemporary uh, keywords. Okay. Whether they would be interested in uh, in doing a radio series, I don't know. But I'll send them an email. Why not? Please do. Why not? What have we got to lose? Um, okay. Uh, cool. So, um, what else are we going to have a think about? We're going to have a think about sort of um, well, Welsh culture a bit as well, aren't we? So, um, we're going to talk about film. We'll get onto that a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also going to do one on music and try not to just sit around talking about how good the first Stereophonics album is, despite <laughs> the fact that it seems to have not much critical reputation. People are very sniffy about 
that band in general, I think, um, which is maybe fair enough because it did get a bit dull, didn't they? But that first album, I think we both uh, agree, is an absolute cracker, right? I think it's um, completely uncontroversial to state that the first Stereophonics album is one of the best of the 90s, uh, if not of all time, even okay. though, um, you know, the, the rest of their work is probably artistically meritless, but there's a lot to be said uh, for Word Gets Around. Yeah, there isn't. Actually, before we go off on a tangent about, about uh, that album, um, it is sort of one of those sort of brilliant slice of life sort of, I mean, like a certain amount of like social realism crept back into music in the early 90s around Britpop. Mm. And um, so what gets around is, is one of the sort of better examples of that as well, really, but sort of combined with um, a load of absolutely cracking tunes and a really good production and quite a diversity of sort of... Um, styles as well um, yeah and I, I don't um really want to use the word authenticity but i uh go for it i guess i just have but it's um you know it's completely opposed to to the sort of like pantomime essexisms uh mm. that were, were in evidence in evidence on um, on blur albums of the same period mm. like it is it's yeah so social realist observation i guess something mm. like um more life in a tramp's vest yeah, that's a great. Oh, look, a boy in the photograph, which oh, you know you'd have, you need a, need a heart of stone not to uh, absolute not cracker. to cry. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to say though, there is one bit that confuses me now, unless I'm getting the lyrics wrong, right? Um, which it seems to be like this seems to be a bit like um, one line seems to be where they found his clothing, right? But my understanding from some of the other things is that he jumped under a train, which slightly leads me to conclude he jumped under a train naked, which may be a Welsh way to go. I've got no <laughs> idea, but. Does it does you lend a slightly comic unless I'm just mishearing that? She's a bit goes where they found his clothes. Yeah, no, I think I think you're correct. I mean, it's it's not something. Maybe um maybe Callie Jones would like to um take part in a future episode and, and explain his lyrical yeah. choices. But um, well, it's a slight a slight oddity that I've noticed in it. I, I point out that my daughter absolutely loves that song. She's only 14 months old. That's a favourite. Uh, well, maybe more life in a tramp's first, actually. That's a favourite. And um, as I've already pointed out before, she's half Japanese. So that is a song that absolutely cuts across all cultural boundaries. Uh, you know, um, especially probably actually jumping naked in front of a train is probably quite a Japanese way to go. As I was well, about to say, yeah. Tokyo subway. Interesting. You know, two, two o'clock in the morning. We have gone slightly off, um, off a tangent there, my apologies. But we're going to do something on... On, on Welsh music as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, speaking of speaking of music, I should uh, mm. point out the song that we used to introduce this is uh, Paul Robeson uh -huh. um, singing the Welsh National Anthem. And again, I, I think this is more well-known than it used to be, but Paul Robeson had um, a very particular dynamic with um, the South Welsh mining communities in the 20s and 30s, uh, which began when he was in London after a performance. And uh, outside his hotel room were um, a bunch of Welsh miners singing in the street, having just been on um, a hunger march, of which there were several in the 20s to protest against um, unemployment and poverty. Um, so the, the South Welsh Valleys delegation ended up um, fulfilling national stereotypes by singing, possibly drunkenly, in the street outside this hotel. And Robson um, went down to chat to them and discovered, you know, political sympathies and solidarities, which led to him um, making several visits to South Wales. Uh, and contributing to um, political and, and cultural life there. And again, in return, they offered him solidarity when he was blacklisted for his uh, politics. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is also anecdotal, but um, uh, there's a guy that used to be in the my local momentum group, and he in fact sort of took took it over and, and ran it as his own little personal sort of um, enclave. But he was a former Guardian journalist, I think, and he used to used to tell the stories actually. But he mentioned once about being in Wales in the 1950s and how the there were some guys there, miners, who were translating the Grundrisse into Welsh. Um, which I remember thinking at the time just uh, reoccurred to me, uh, to me now. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but um, I just thought I'd mention it now, now since it cropped up. Um, right, so we're going to talk about Welsh music then, of course. Well, I think you're going to go back and you're going to look at the 60s, this efflorescence of sort of culture um, in the 60s as well, and then also, I guess, through to sort of Britpop and, and then post Britpop. Yeah, well, well, I think I, I feel I've, I've probably said enough myself about Cool Camry and um, mm. and Wales in the 90s in general, but it, it'll be good to get um, other perspectives on that. And also, also um, I mean, not not simply, yeah, let's let's try try and um, swerve away from um, the Britpop yeah. abyss. Um, but can, um, can I controversially say that I've slightly softened in my attitude towards both Britpop and Blairism? Uh, you can certainly say that. Sorry to tell you that. Sorry to drop that bombshell. Slightly softened. Slightly <laughs> softened, I'd like to point out there as well. But I'm sort of quite interested to have that conversation because I've sort of been thinking a little bit about um, the ways in which Britpop was probably the last sort of attempt to sort of bring the to have a united kingdom of sort of pop and we not excluded some groups within the united kingdom and that's what it's historically critical for but mm. um a sort of level a sort of equal footing between the nations in sort of terms of like pop dynasties or whatever um that was probably can... the last time there was even a sort of smidgen of um the idea of sort of some sort of national shared national culture i i think yeah and no, i think that's an important conversation to have um we'll also uh hopefully be discussing the again the sort of lesser lesser known traditions within wales whether that's mm. the um post-punk in cardiff in the the 70s and 80s mm. or um so Duff, duffy they won the, the importance of uh, of welsh folk music and protest music mm. um to the nationalist revival in the 60s um or, or the valleys tradition which obviously the manics came out of and were exemplars of um mm. which was all about uh, la glam and having uh True big hair and tight trousers and the um, escapist proletarian glam aesthetic that uh, I personally love. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Um, but so we're going to think about talking about um, sort of other uh, sort of sort of things which have been influenced, influences in Welsh culture from outside Wales itself. We're also going to think about the extent to which sort of people have moved out of Wales uh, as well. Mm. So we're going to have a little think about an episode where we talk about sort of um, the Welsh sort of diaspora to an extent, but with a sort of specific focus really on London. Yeah. Um, why Why the focus on London specifically? Um, uh, pure self-indulgence, really. Okay, as a, great. Uh, <laughs> but, but also sort of thinking about... I don't know. I, I think I am. I am quite typical in someone who has left the valleys um, for education um, initially, but also because um, I didn't see any um, space for what I actually wanted to do with my life within the valleys. I think that has now changed since the nineties. I don't know if it's if it's changed completely, mm -hmm. um, but I, I certainly feel I followed a kind of classic trajectory, uh, not just of Welsh people, but of um, you know people all over the UK probably have sort of left small towns for um, an attempt to self-actualize um, in the big city. 
Um, I'm also really um, something that I uh, I don't know if I if I bring up in the actual episode, but one of my um, I wouldn't say heroes, but just one of the Welsh people I'm very interested in is uh, Yolo Morganog, um, the stonemason, opium addict, literary forger, and self-proclaimed druid. Um, Real heads will know my Twitter handle at one point was uh, Yolo Morganog, Y O L O, back when uh, when that was a thing. So shout out to anyone who remembers uh, remembers that. Um, Yolo Morganog actually managed to establish a lot of the um, the cultural apparatus that uh, still upholds some of Welsh artistic and cultural life. Like he, um, well, f- first of all, like he had no. Um, he's a great example of a, an autodidact. Like he had no formal schooling, but he claimed that he learned to read while watching his father um, carving gravestones. Mm-hmm. His dad was a stonemason, so he he sort of supposedly learned to uh, to read and write from there. Um, he also uh, learned to write poetry from local bards uh, when he was growing up, or so he so he claimed. Um, so in 1792, um, he walks actually from Glamorgan where he's grown up to London with the aim of becoming a professional writer. Um, While in London, um, fueled by the sort of anxiety that the Welsh were uh, losing their heritage and their traditions, he felt he had to preserve them um, and reintroduce them to the public, including the London public. Um, But he went really overboard with this and started uh, forging documents and and creating traditions about um, Druidism, like claiming that Druidism and the Bardic tradition had uh, had carried on since the days before the Romans in an unbroken line, uh, which was completely incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to play into um, the, the upsurge of sort of Celtic romanticism in the early 19th century, particularly among um, English middle-class artistic circles, kind of early hipsters. Um, these, these circles saw Wales as a, a reservoir of nature untainted by modernity and, and very much wanted to believe in um, the stuff that he was selling. So he, he did things like publishing a collection of poetry um, by a 14th century bard, but he also included a huge number uh, of fake poems in it that he'd written himself. Um, he also had a massive uh, laudanum habit th- throughout this process, which, which sort of tormented him. And he had an obsession with, um, with the poet Thomas Chatterton, who died very young. And he, he thought the uh, same thing would... Um, would happen to him. He, th- he thought specifically that London was destroying him as it had uh, Chatterton. So he, he ended up failing to earn a living as a writer and then returned to Glamorgan um, and re- wrote at one point to his wife, I shall curse London with my latest breath. Brilliant. Um, it looks like he succeeded as well. I mean, we, we both live here. I think it feels fairly <laughs> cursed at times, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Actually, uh, that reminds me that there's a novel in that somewhere, right? A sort of fictionalized, slightly fictionalized account of that guy's life is a, is a uh, sure. novel in the offing. Um, sure. But, but we'll we'll do it first, Ryan, in case anybody who's listening thinks, right, brilliant, I'll get that done. You're not allowed <laughs> to because we're, we're going to do it first. Um, okay, brilliant. And then sort of, I guess, what we'll also look at culturally is um, Welsh film, really. Um, and we'll think about, I guess... Um, well, I mean, the, the general sort of ways in which Wales is perhaps portrayed differently. I think what will come out of the episode will be the ways in which Wales is portrayed differently or portrays itself differently um, to some of the ways that Ireland and Scotland are portrayed, especially sort of um, in contemporary sort of visions of those countries. Um, the much more antagonistic mm-hmm. relationship with England that's evident in um, a lot of sort of Scottish and Irish cinema. 
and that's probably what will will come out of that conversation. Um, so, and I think that will in itself um, be interesting to have a think about. And that'll sort mm -hmm. of that's sort of it, isn't it? That's pretty much everything we're going to do. That's a hell of a lot, yeah. isn't it? Surely that's pretty comprehensive. Um, I suppose there's always more. Well, it's enough to start off with. Things. I mean, I'm I'm sure there'll there'll be there'll be things that we leave out, and there'll be things that we address in a way that's not sufficient. Mm. Um, and I welcome all all comments saying mm. this, and I also welcome any any contributions if people want to do their own like one-off episode about. Um, an aspect of Wales that interests them or a longer series, then they can um, they can get in touch. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Because I think like um, we want as much um, Welsh content as um, is humanly possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, just because like, again, we're attempting this, aren't we? I said that's comprehensive, but I mean, you know, really we're just scratching the surface, aren't we? To be honest with you, you know. Yeah, um, and I mean, I'm, I think it's particularly important to, to hear from communities within Wales that um, are usually not mm. heard of. Um, One of the things, actually, sorry, like I'm, a, I'm slightly butting in there, <laughs> not, not atypically, but um, what, what I think we also really want, actually, while we're here, if we're like pitching now, like um, for, for people to come and do stuff is, we'd really like some Welsh language content, uh, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. And then I would sort of quite like, um, like Welsh language classes, basic sort of Welsh, Classes. I mean, I guess you just YouTube them, right? So I guess you don't necessarily need to do that. But I think something we're inter very interested in having sort of content in other languages. We've got some Spanish coming up. We're also going to try and get something in Cantonese as well. Um, mm. The process of trying to do, but so Welsh language stuff would be um, good to have as well, especially stuff around sort of Welsh traditional folk music as well in Welsh would be would be sort of very interesting. So we'll see yeah. what we can and, and non and non folk music as well. There's a yeah. lot of um, really good Welsh language, um, well, rock, sort of from the yeah. from the 60s and 70s onwards. Uh, also Kizzy Crawford, who I, I really like, and is from Merthyr, who does sort of fusions of Welsh and Bajan uh, mm. musical traditions. Wow. Okay. Well, some <laughs> of that's going to come up in, in the um, mix that you've put together for us sort of mm. directly after this, right? So yeah. um, that'll be a sort of exciting jumping off point for thinking about uh, some of the sort of uh, heterogeneity of Wales, I suppose, uh, mm -hmm. sort of contemporary and uh, sort of historical um, sort of patterns of immigration uh, as well that they've been into Wales, which don't really, not really going to cover that closely in this stuff, I guess, but future episodes when we've gathered our strength from this yeah, epic, definitely. epic foray, um, we can probably think about that a bit later. Okay, mm -hmm. is there anything else we need to add at this point or if we sort of... Um, I'll just... I'll just since it is St. David's Day, um, oh, yeah. I guess it's important to note that um, St. David's most uh, most famous miracle took place when he was preaching to a large crowd and people at the back complained they couldn't hear him. Mm -hmm. uh, so he created a hill okay. from which he could be heard. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Welsh landscape, but uh, I'm not sure if another hill was really uh, really the miracle that was needed at that point. But, um, you know, good, good on him for giving the people at the back. A chance to hear, and apparently after he'd after he'd done this, um, a white dove settled on his shoulder. So I imagine it was a bit like uh, that time Bernie Sanders uh, mm -hmm. in Portland had that bird landing on his uh, his podium. So yes, well done to St David, and uh, happy St David's Day to all. Brilliant, thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>